Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome to the Troxell Podcast. I'm Evan Troxell. In this episode of the show, I have a conversation with Sharice Lakeside. Sharice is a phenomenal person, and I met her on Twitter, of all places. Seems like the watering hole for architects and others in the AEC industry. We talk a little bit about that during this episode. Sharice is a senior specification writer at RDH Building Science, and she has over 30 years of experience in AEC. And you'll hear in this episode that journey that she's been on, starting out in architecture, moving into MEP, and now working at RDH. Her passions, very clearly stated in her Twitter profile, are CSI, mentoring, and better collaboration. And all of those topics come up in this conversation. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with Sharice and have the opportunity to connect in this long-form conversation. Sharice exemplifies drive and motivation to accomplish anything that anyone can set their mind to. We all need to know more people like Sharice, so I hope you will take this opportunity to get to know her and reach out and follow her on Twitter or LinkedIn. Those links are in the show notes. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sharice Lakeside. Sharice Lakeside, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you. Thank you. I am happy to be here. I feel like I've kind of arrived when I get to be on this podcast. I felt the same way when you invited uh, the Arcuspeak crew to the Construct show. So it's mutual. We're helping each other out. You guys will hopefully have to come back when we get to meet in person. Again. Yeah, <laughs> whenever that is, huh? But oh, you guys man. didn't stay for long. We never did get to have cocktails. Or I know, I know. Any of that. Yeah, it was a it was a run and gun kind of a. It was just like show up and get out. Yeah, I know. Well, we did we have we did have people flying across the country to come and and do that. So it was a, yeah, it was logistics are hard. Let's just put it out there. Logistics are are difficult, and even now, logistics are. Well, maybe they're easier just because you can just turn on the computer and like we are and talking to each other. Yeah, well, that's how Construct is happening this year is virtually. Every conference. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's incredible. Well, okay. So I thought that we could talk about your role. You've recently had a shift in your career, right? And and traditionally, you know, I think you said for the last six years, you've been writing specs for in MEP. You obviously interface with architects. And now you're more on the building science side of things, but just big picture, CSI specs, your involvement with, with that part of practice and the industry, what has your experience been like? What's that been like? How did you get into that? How did, where did that shift happen? Because you've only been doing it for that long. So where'd you come from before that? How did that shift happen? Well, it's interesting. Actually, most of my career has been in architecture. The last five years, um, were at two architecture firms, and there were six years in MEP before that, Okay. after the economy tanked in 2008, and 22 years in an architecture firm before that. I started when I was two. <laughs> yes. I can try. I, I get can it. Try, okay? I get it. But uh, yeah, it, it's kind of been an interesting journey because I've also worked in construction. And so way back... I was 20 years old when I started at that first architecture firm. And one of the principals in that firm, I worked for three men. I was 20 and female in a time where women maybe weren't as, didn't have the same equal seat at the table. Mm. But they definitely have a lot more often now. But one of the partners in that firm was a founding member of Portland CSI. And he used to tell me all the time, Sharice, you need to get involved in CSI. And you know, I had, I was a single parent for a while and then I got married and I had this large family and I just didn't have time. Yeah. So I actually, CSI came along, I've known about it. And because he was a founding member of CSI, I feel like I've been born and raised in CSI practices, even though I wasn't involved in CSI. And in October, it'll be nine years now that I have actually been a member of CSI. So I didn't join until I was working for that MEP firm. You know, I was starting to get kids out of the house and um, had more room to do some of the things in my career that I kind of backburnered earlier. Mm. I've worked full time my whole adult life, but I had four busy kids and yeah. I felt the need to run everything they did, too. Yeah. And so 
when I jumped into CSI about nine years ago, I kind of jumped all the way in, like all the way into everything immediately. I think I was president of our chapter within two years or something like that. And I just finished three years on the Institute board, but it just, it was something I always wanted to do and didn't have time. And had a number of people, mentors throughout my career say, you really should do this. And I didn't really listen. And I regret that. Mm. So I have conversations with younger professionals about that now, because one of the things that is so beautiful about CSI that, that you just don't get anywhere else is every member of the project team has an equal seat at the table in membership and in everything that we do. Mm. And and so I often tell people, because they say, oh, well, you know, I don't need CSI, I'm not a spec writer. It's it's not about being a spec writer, nor is it about specifications. That's one small component mm. of CSI these days. That's how it started back in the 1940s or where, whenever it was. But now that the things we teach are things like project delivery. Do you know how to deliver a project? Because I guarantee you, every architect I know, it's very few had any kind of real project delivery education in school. Mm-hmm. They might have had one practice class and they probably talked more about marketing and getting clients than they did about what's a change order or how do you process an application for payment yeah. or what kind of risk, How what are your documents supposed to look like? Those kinds of things. So CSI does all of that, but whether you're an architect or an engineer or a product rep or a specifier or an owner, you have the same footing that I do in the organization. And so every meeting you go to, I've got a problem at work and I bring it up and I'm chatting with somebody and I can have a contractor tell me, well, this is how we see that. Mm -hmm. And then an engineer turn around and say, well, wait, what about this? And so the depth of that, and I learn more from all the other members than I, than I do from the education. Mm -hmm. I mean, because you have everybody there. And I think for me personally, that's the most beautiful thing about the organization organization. So I tell everybody, if you're an architect, I'm not telling you to quit AIA. Stay in AIA and learn your craft there. Mm-hmm. And then come to CSI as well and learn how to deliver your project. Because AIA or ASHRAE or ASPE or AGC or whoever isn't going to teach you that. Because mm-hmm. nobody teaches it but CSI. Mm-hmm. And most people don't even know that. But it is the smartest thing I ever did. And I wish I would have listened to my boss when I was 20. Yeah, uh, earlier, yeah. And got involved then because I probably really, truly would be queen of the world now. Mm. <laughs> telling people I am. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's, that's kind of what I drank the Kool-Aid as soon as, I mean, it, it didn't take me very long to figure out what they were all about once I joined. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so awesome. And I, I, I don't know, I've probably done a full, in the nine years I've been in CSI, I've done a full 360 in my career multiple times. Mm. I never spoke in public in my life. I think I'm up to around 300 speaking engagements now in the last seven years. Wow. I teach the whole CDT certification series. I mean, there's all these things I've, I've never done before that this organization not only gave me the opportunity to do, but they really embrace you no matter who you are. Nobody is better than anybody else in CSI, mm. regardless of your role on the project team. We realize that, you know, I'm back on the engineering side now. Although we do at RDH, we also work as prime um, on projects. But, um, you know, there's nobody that, okay, because I have this position, I, I'm running your show. We all run the show together. And, it, and it's, it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. So you worked for, in architecture for quite a while. Why did you end up going to MEP? Was it convenience? Was it you wanted a change of pace, a change of scenery, all of the above? I, you know, like what? Because that, that's... To me, like that's going to the dark side. What what did you do? You went to the dark side. I did go to the dark side. I learned a lot going to the dark side too. I bet. So to be absolutely brutally honest, I needed a job. Mm. The recession hit in 2008. Mm-hmm. I'd been at my firm for 22 years and nobody was hiring. Mm-hmm. And so I actually worked in my mom's used clothing store for about a year and a half. Um, during the recession because nobody was hiring. And I knew all of the principals at this MEP firm because they were the MEP firm my firm used for the last 22 years. And I saw they had an ad up for a job and I called up one of the principals and I said, hey, John, do I want to work there? Mm-hmm. And I needed I needed to get my foot back in the door in the industry. And that was the first opportunity that I had to do that. So I took it. So 
when I walked in, I swear now I'm in building science. I swear like I've had to restart my career. Yeah. I mean, okay. I ha- I know I know all the things I know, but MVP is a whole different ballgame. Right. I will tell you one thing I learned from that though. Architects really screw up. <laughs> no, in, no crap. Well, I, <laughs> I think I architects to, know that too. <laughs> um, well, I had to, I mean, I'm not an architect, but I had to basically stand up and say, hi, sure. I'm, I'm Sharice and I'm a recovering architectural design professional or whatever you want to call me. Right. Specifier because, you know, I did, I complained about the consultants all the time for that first 22 years. And why do they do this? And they're screwing up the documents and, eh, you know, yep. I mean, I just thinking back to it, I'm thinking, God, Sharice, you were an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went, went to work for MEP and went to the dark side. And now I had to be subservient to the architect, you know, cause they rule the roost on the projects and tell everybody what needs to be done. And I'm like, Oh my God, I get it now. I get exactly why the engineers are doing these things. I get what they haven't had. That's where I first started teaching the CDT. I'll tell you, we changed the game at that firm. Mm. But also I saw where the architects were not appropriately communicating to their consultants things that they they needed to be communicating. I mean, they're the hub of the wheel. You're supposed to be leading the project, right? So when I left that firm and went back to architecture, the way I dealt with consultants back on the light side. (laughs) Yeah. Um, was completely different, Quite different than yeah. the way it was um, before I went to work there. And it's actually not, there There are things the engineers could do better, but somebody needs to tell them that. Yeah, They don't have the same exposure to the process and the documents right, and right. the contractual requirements. Yeah. So that was um, a come to God meeting for me that where I had to own up to the problems I was having were actually my fault, not theirs. Wow. Well, I, I would imagine that that context gave you so much insight, right? That that you you now kind of being on both sides of the table at different points, that's got to be a big deal. Like, and and most people don't have the time or the wherewithal to try even to have that empathy or that understanding or whatever it takes that motivation to make that happen um, because they're they're doing what they're doing, right? So. I think just it just through your circumstances enabled that to happen, but most people never get that opportunity. Do, is that something that you talk about in your workshops, and is that something that you go like relive and and tell that story to everybody that 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 you come in touch with during any of these courses? That, that's funny that you asked that question because, like I said, I never spoke in public. Mm-hmm. Except for hey, your trophy money's due on Friday if I was running some kids' event or whatever, and. A very good friend pushed me, just like, you'd be a great speaker, Sharice. And I told him he was insane. <laughs> and he pushed me to submit a proposal to construct, uh-huh. you know, so go big or go home, right? Yeah. Just go straight to the convention. Yeah. And I did it because I didn't think there was a snowball's chance in hell they would accept it. And they did. So the very first time I presented professionally in public was at Construct, and it was about seven years ago, and it was at in Nashville, and my presentation was architect engineer coordination, closing the gap. Mm. And I'm actually, I haven't done it at Construct since then, but I'm doing it again this in October. Wow, um, bringing it back. Back at Construct. Because I've also worked in construction. That was my very first job Yeah. Um, in the industry, which kind of really weirdly and inadvertently led me here. And now I'm learning building science and you know, taking on a whole new discipline. But I think it's the most valuable thing that, that has happened to me in, in my career is having that lens from different sides of the fence. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Because I don't, I don't approach anything like anybody else does. And I'm constantly, when I'm working with my engineers now or the architects at, at my previous firm, I'm constantly going, well, wait, what about this? Well, you know, good questions to ask, right? Like, I think that's a big part of it is just knowing what questions are to ask. And I can imagine when you went to the MEP firm and you're taught, like the, the the engineer doesn't even know the questions to ask the architect at the right time necessarily, right? So, so because right. you have that experience from those different points of view and you know who kind of has what information, but nobody's asking the question, you actually have that insight. And I would imagine that arming individuals with the right questions at the right time just unlocks so much information or has the potential to. Right. Well, and preparing, doing their specifications, mm-hmm. 
you know, they would send me some markups and I would go back to them and say, you can't put this here. The architect yeah. is responsible for this and they have a section in division one where they have this and you have to take this out or you have to call them and coordinate the information or you're creating a conflict. And it was like blank stares most of the time. And it not, it's not because they're stupid. Yeah. They're incredibly intelligent people. But if you've never been exposed to it, you, you don't know what you don't know, right? Right, right. And if nobody's ever told you and your architects aren't sharing that information with you early in the project, then how do you ever know? Sometimes the consultants don't ever see a full set of documents until the project's already out the door and on the street. Yeah. Well, and nowadays... Nobody's reading it then. Well, nowadays people are so busy modeling and going into the model and adding attributes to elements in the model, they're still not necessarily looking at the sheets. They're not looking at the drawings. And what's interesting is, like you're you're saying, like they've never seen the sheet. Like they're there. (laughs) They're in that model. Doesn't mean anybody's opening them and looking at them. It's kind of a, um, a passion area for me to have people see the value in understanding how the other people you work with work. Workflow is different, completely different in a consulting firm than it is an architecture firm. Mm. Having that understanding really does make the way you work more efficient. And I can't stand being inefficient. <laughs> it, it like makes me twitch. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. I, I get the feeling you know how to get things done. <laughs> when I want to. Yeah, right. Wow. So it's better if I enjoy it. So I think it was a few years ago that we collaborated on updating some workflows and systems and everything between the firm that I work at and your experience and knowledge and some colleagues of mine. And we did some training and stuff. So talking about like they're thinking about the idea of modernizing systems as far as, you know, what technology can do in this part of the profession. What have you seen, like like not talking about specific tools, we're just talking about like the way people work. What have you seen has been kind of some game changers in that? Has there been anything that's really, or is it just like incremental evolution? Is there anything that, that really stands out to you on the spec side of architecture or consultants work? What stands out to me more than what's a game changer is, is what our biggest detriments are. Hmm. I don't know why change is so hard Oh man, yeah. for people in AEC. I mean, change is hard for anybody to a certain degree, but I, I constantly feel, and, and I have felt this way my entire career, that I am at war mm. to make the tiniest step forward to do something different. Now, part of that, I think, is the pressure of this whole time is money business. It's billable time. We've got to stay in this project budget, but I actually see people spending twice as much time to do something because this is what I know and it's what's comfortable for me, yep. even if it's grossly inefficient. Yeah. And I I don't know that I've seen any big game changers. You know, I remember when, God, I don't want to be aging myself. I remember when AutoCAD first came out and people were using it with these funny little tablets on their desk and everybody said this is going to be the game changer we're going to cut the time it takes us to do drawings down to nothing right that's what they said at the time and i did all the besides the specs and everything at that firm i also did all the project management project budgets and so after everybody got up to speed on autocad i did it and we did all schools at that firm so it was really easy to compare apples to apples i did this analysis of three like elementary schools, brand new from the ground up elementary schools that they drew by hand and three like elementary schools that they drew with AutoCAD once they were up to speed and it wasn't a new technology. Three times as much time to do those schools in AutoCAD. Three times. (laughs) Three times as much time than by drawing it by hand because one of the things that has happened with our technology is we can do all these crazy, amazing things. And we do. But, <laughs> right. And, and, and it's wonderful. But we'll do no, more. There's no pencils down anymore. Right. Nobody ever stops changing anything. Yeah. And so I think the game changer is going to be when we get some of those parameters back in design. Mm. Nobody ever makes a decision anymore. They change their mind every 30 seconds. And every time somebody changes their mind, it has this trickle effect out to everybody else on the project team. Yeah. 
your consultants, your spec writers, your owner, whoever. And that's where the game changer needs to be. Change is slow in this business. I mean, for me, like I'm doing specs now in SpecLink, which is a database-driven program instead of a word-based program. For me and the work that I do, that's been the biggest game changer for me, both in um, efficiency, because I can do things at the click of one button that used to take me hours or days before, and just ease of use and the fact that at some point it's going to play nice with Revit in the model. They're not quite there yet with the technology for that to work really well. That's probably been my game changer. But yeah. industry game changers, we, we, we need to start being um, less afraid of game changers and trying. New yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. And I think, you know, if you look at the tools that are in mainstream use today, it's just basically a, a digital version of a pencil. But now you have infinite zoom. And to me, that's where we get really hung up is you can zoom in and you can zoom in and zoom in and zoom in and zoom in. And then pretty much, you you know, you're looking at the smallest little thing and with the pencil, you never had to do that. You, and you never would, right? Uh, you would not do that on purpose. So it's very, it's a very different environment. And because I don't know, there's so many perfectionists out there, so many perfectionist architects and designers and everything does have to be on the Nats ass accurate. And I'll, you know, because, it's CAD and you can be, and you probably should be. Um, but, but still it doesn't take the constant zooming in, zooming out, zooming in, zooming out to build an effective building and to do an effective design. But we do. And I think that that's part of it. The other part of it that I see being locked onto a screen is, um, there's a lot of, and I'm, I'm making a hand gesture right now for those of you on the podcast, who can't see this, but like, there's a lot of spinning the model, right? Just constantly spinning the model around, especially on the early phases of design. And so we're looking at this little object and typically there's no context. And so we're looking at it as a 360 degree fluid thing. Nobody ever experiences architecture like that. Nobody, right? So I think a lot of times we put a lot of attention everywhere when we're doing design work rather than where it counts, you know? And I think that that was probably something that was a lot more effective in the older ways of doing things because, you know, you, you had a studio full of draftspeople and somebody would walk around and kind of keep an eye on everything and understand what was going on here and there and, like, understanding that somebody was working on elevations on a sheet and somebody was working on a different sheet with sections and and that, you know, studio manager would walk around and coordinate things as, as much or more than the individual draftspeople would, right? So, but now it's like, what I do has this ripple effect, and I have to chase that through the model. If I understand what I'm doing, if I don't understand what I'm doing, I'm creating some problem for somebody else later, right? Well, and that's a perfect segue into a, a really big issue, but I think a game-changing moment that's going on in our industry right now is that our generations are flipping, and they're flipping fast. Mm -hmm. uh, across all industries, 75 million boomers. 40 or 45 million Gen Xers, which I'm at the older end of Gen X, and then 75 million Millennials and 75 million Zs. So as of this year, 50% of our workforce as a whole are Millennials and under. Mm -hmm. By 2025, 2024, 25, 80% of our workforce is going to be, so in, within the next about four years, 80% is going to be millennials or younger because Gen X is so small. And then in, in AEC, we lost a bunch of Gen Xers through the two long recessions we've had in our lifetime right. that left architecture and did not come back. Yeah. So we're already half the size of the boomers and we're even shorter than that in our industry. And what I'm seeing already is there's the good, bad, and the ugly. The good is all of these young people are taking the reins in positions of leadership far earlier than they ever would have been allowed to historically in our industry because we don't have enough Gen Xers to fill the boomer shoes. The bad thing is we're doing a piss poor job of mentoring them yeah. um, with the years of experience piece. They're innovative and they've got things to teach us, but they, they don't have that 20 years of experience before somebody lets them. I got a 24-year-old walk up to me and say, I've been told to write this spec. And they're barely out of school 
or they told me to do CA and I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. Yeah. I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm saying we're not doing a good job. And part of it is because Gen X is so small. We're kind of overburdened in the firm. Yeah. Because there's so few of us to take those boomers seats and they're all leaving. Yeah. So we have a lot of younger people right now working on things kind of blind. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I just pulled up a slide that I had done some research in our own firm and I'm looking at it here and, and I divided it based on age groups. So, you know, 19 to 24, 25 to 34, 35 to 44. And those ones are all green. I call those the greens. Okay. And then we've got the 45 to 54, 55 to 64, 65 to 74, and then 75 and older. And I call those the grays. Okay. So we've got the greens and the grays and it's 58% green. So it's more than 50%. And oh yeah, we'll see it. It's growing faster even. And that's, that's our firm. So I, you know, it's not going to be the same everywhere, but I mean, I, that's probably for the firm, our size, that's probably pretty average. It's like, 360, 370 people at that time. So it speaks to the wave that is coming. And it also speaks to, like you're saying, the limited bandwidth that Gen X has. And I've always seen Gen X, which I'm also a part of, as kind of this bridge between the boomers and the millennials. Like we kind of speak both languages. We're not digital natives like the greens are, but, but we did adapt to that fairly easily. We didn't grow up with technology, but we adapted to it really well. We realized that it's it's the way we're going to be doing work. And then the millennials, you know, the greens are sharers by nature, right? They're also really good citizens as far as like the world is concerned. They want to change the world. They they care about the environment. And then you've got the grays who are not good sharers by by nature just because they never they never had to. And so that mentorship is difficult for them to to do that. And I'm totally generalizing, but this is just trends that I see. Um, like like we have an internet and try to get somebody to actually write something down that's their experience, that has that experience, and it's very difficult to get that to happen. Try to get a millennial to write something down, and they're going to make a video about it, right? And they're going to produce it. Exactly. And, and, and they're... Exactly. And so we are bridging that gap. We are trying to speak both languages and ease that future so that it can happen because it is a wave. It is a tidal wave coming. Uh, and the, the wave is actually already hitting. It's here. It's, it's not here. coming. Yeah. It's, it's here right now. Yeah. And I, I love it. I, w- I would work with millennials and younger. Mm-hmm. I would choose to work with them over my own generation or the boomers any day of the week. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm not saying... That they have all the knowledge yet in some areas, but they have a whole bunch of knowledge I don't have. Right. You know, it's just different knowledge. So I see them, they, they have as much to teach me as I do them. But they keep me excited about the work that I do. And, you know, they're just, there's not that kind of tired burnout. The, the, the things I always complain about in my classes, don't say it's never going to change. Don't mm. ever say that to mm. me. My head will spin around on my neck <laughs> or we've always done it this way or yes. you don't, you don't hear that from that group. Right. No, um, you hear why, why is it like this? Yeah. Why are we doing it like this? And I, you know, it's very much like raising kids. It's why is it this way? Well, because of this. Well, why is that? Well, because of this. Well, why, 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 why? <laughs> and, and it, it makes sense, right? Because they grew up with a different framework. And so it doesn't make sense a lot of the time when you say, here's what you're going to do and here's how you're going to do it. It just doesn't make sense. It does not add up. It doesn't compute. And so on one hand, it's refreshing to see that attitude of possibility and that excitement and that energy. And on the other hand, it, it is also draining, right? And like, especially when you don't have the bandwidth and you can't keep up with all of that because there's just so much coming all the time. Um, so it, it is hard and that puts us, I mean, and you're right. They were, I mean, you're not raising your kids to just do what they're told and not question it. Right. It, I know I sure as hell didn't raise mine that way. I mean, I, I've raised my kids to be empowered and to go after whatever their dreams are and to work hard and, and question authority when it's necessary and not be afraid to do so. Um, I've had plenty of times in my career that I got to be somebody's doormat. 
Mm. And I didn't want my kids to, you know, come up in that same thing. But you're right, because there's so few of us and they're wanting us to take over the leadership of firms, do our job and be productive. And then just for me personally, I want to help that generation and I do every chance I get. But you're right. It's 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 overwhelming sometimes. Yeah. And it's hard to juggle all of those balls. So so speaking of juggling balls, you so you, you're doing the CDT courses, too. Right. So you, you've got your job. You're also doing these speaking gigs and you do these 10 week long virtual now all virtual. Right. Uh, CDT yeah. courses. So, and you, I think you said that the enrollment is like way up, right? So. Well, I've, I've been teaching the CDT for about seven or eight years since I've been in CSI. I started teaching it not very long in. And, you know, my typical class would be anywhere from the in-person classes, um, 10 to 20. Mm-hmm. I think my biggest class I ever had up until last year was 25. And then last year, we decided to offer it up as a live webinar. We don't record them for people to watch later, but like my whole class right now, it's a live, we're doing it via Zoom meeting. Yeah. Because, you know, we run a comprehensive course. Some chapters don't have the bandwidth to run a course at all. So I knew there were people out there or like product reps travel a lot and they need a class that's in the evenings and some their chapter does one in the afternoons. So we thought if there's somebody who needs it, we'll offer it up, you know, no matter who they are or where they are in the country, don't even have to be a CSI member. And we did that and our numbers started, people are like, oh my God, oh my God, I want this. So I have, as far as I know, I don't have the whole history of Portland CSI, but I have 61 people in the class I started last night. So there is a hunger out there. Yeah. When I had 56 in my spring class, cause I do this 10 week course twice a year. Yeah. But I love that. And most of them are younger professionals. Oh. They're like, oh, wait, I, I, that's what I love about them. They're like, I need to know this. I'm in. Yeah. Teach me. Yeah. There's no barrier there, right? They don't see that as a barrier at all. And I think that's one of the things like, like you were talking about teaching kids how to solve problems and realizing th- what's out there. They've just got their finger on that pulse. And it's like, I need this thing. Here's how I'm going to get there. Done. Sign up. Done. Going to do it. And there's a huge motivation there because they don't want to wait around until they're 60 years old to become a leader of a firm. They don't want to wait. Yeah. Well, one of the, I do a young professionals day for our convention as well. And one of the little short speeches I do during that is called how to set yourself apart. Mm. And the other thing I love about the younger professionals is if you can give them an intelligent reason that makes sense of why they should do something, they are all in. 100% taking it seriously. They're some of the best students I've ever had. And I explained to them, this is why you need this. And this is how it's going to change your career. And it's how they've got all kinds of competition because there's 150 million of them between millennials and Zs. Um, You want to set yourself apart. You want to be able to tell, show your boss how to do it. Right. Let me explain this to you. And, and they get it and they actually listen to you. I know people our age and older that I would like to drag into my CBT class so I can yeah. teach them how to do it right. Right. <laughs> you know, but they're, no, they've been around forever. So we've got it all figured out. Yeah. <laughs> they got it. <laughs> exactly. Wow. So this is a 10 week long course and it sounds to me like people are seeking you out. And I mean, it's, it's obvious why you, I bet you make that class really fun and I'm sure that there's a ton of really useful information. So that word is that word of mouth is traveling. It sounds like. Well, I, I hope I make it fun because that's just, I, you know, I, it's, it's one of your mantras. Most, Come on. It's not the most <laughs> riveting content in the world. <laughs> so if I don't do something, you know, I make all my students sign NDAs so nobody knows how fun I make it. But, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm it's kidding. a secret. Yeah. <laughs> well, funny, my, I had a class, my last, last year's fall class series. I was joking with my class. The very last class is when we go over every article in the A201. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes that's, mm, that's makes dry. anybody want to jump that, jump off a bridge. Yeah. <laughs> so I, when I'm doing the in-person class, at least, I always make that a little party. Oh. Because that's also yeah. our last class. So bring some hors d'oeuvres, bring your drink of choice, whether it's a Pepsi or double shot of tequila. I don't care. Just don't drink too much so you forget everything I told you. And I jokingly told my class, we're going to have a onesie party. <laughs> and, and I was just kidding. 
And sure enough, one of the young architects, young male architects in the class shows up and I think he was a platypus. Nice. Onesie. And I'm just like, oh my God, you're kidding me. He actually dressed up. But yeah, I try to make it fun and I try to, it's not always fun, but I, I give, I try to give real examples. I'm not just reading this slide. I'm saying, you know, you need to understand how this works and, and let me explain to you what you're, you might see and how that might come down the pipe. Yeah. And, and we, we have, you know, good CDT teachers all over the country. It's just whether a particular class is set up in a way that works for a particular student, you know, and right now with COVID, some chapters don't have that even offer a class, don't have the bandwidth to do their typical class. So Mm, I'm sure that's contributing to the numbers that we have too, but you know, I'm, I'm grateful that we have the opportunity to share that with a good chunk of our people in the class this time around are not CSI members. Okay, so you you talked about having this little onesie party, um, and yeah. <laughs> and one of the one of the key components of this new spec workflow that we talked a little bit about earlier is the spec party, which totally came from you, right? Like you, right. so so Sharice, you like you like to have all these little parties and these celebrations, right? So to me, this is something that so many, and it's something actually I wrote about in my ARE book when I was t- teaching people how to come up with a strategy to pass their exams, you have to celebrate these wins. You have to take the time to do that. I mean, it reinforces it. It makes it more fun. It makes it worth doing. There's so many reasons for that. Like, I I often feel like we take ourselves way too seriously. (laughs) It's an understatement of the century. (laughs) So, so you, yeah, I mean, and that's, I, I just want to get your input on why that's important to you? Why is it important to to do these celebrations? And and maybe it's already been said, but I just I would love to hear it from you. You know, I a lot of people think I'm a nut job, and I'm not. But I just have a I want to be happy yeah. all day, yeah. every day, if I can be, not unreasonably. Um, and and not all of the work we do is always riveting. You know, some of my little personality tests at my last firm made me do that I probably shouldn't even be a spec writer. Mm. Um, but I do have the fact finder component. But I just don't see why, you know, how many people do you, that you know like specs? I'm, I'm trying to, zero. Yeah. yeah one. Actually, yeah. I know one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> one yeah. or two. Jeffrey, right? Jeffrey, Jeffrey? and Cormac, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, really? Cormac? I never would have picked Oh, that. yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but the thing is, is I know that the general population in our industry hates specs. They're afraid of them. They don't want anything to do with them. They just, so I found in anything I do in life, if I can approach you in a way that will make whatever this thing is we have to do a little more interesting yeah. or a little more fun or it really a helps little more engaging. Get it, through it, it, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I start finding that I'm getting more and more people to at least not detest specs. Mm. They still might not run to them and embrace them. But, you know, I say we're having a party. We don't really even have a party. I don't even bring treats half the time. But I just call it a party and I have a smile on my face and it's a different, it's just more about an attitude. Yeah, yeah. Than it really is any specific thing. Yeah. Let's let's get together. Let's smile about it. Let's figure this out. Yeah. That's better than, you know, nitpicking every little thing. I like that. It's an attitude. It it totally is. And I think that's one of the things that does make what you do stand apart from from others is that you've got to have something, right? You've got to have something in there that makes it bearable, worth doing. I don't know what the right word is because maybe maybe those sound a little too downer, but it's it really really helps to have that. It one of the things I'm I'm recalling is a book that I read called Drive by Dan Pink and it's about motivation. So so the whole premise of the book, based on science and research, is that carrots and sticks don't work. Um, research and science so many times have shown this, but corporate America is totally built on carrots and sticks, right? All That's how all incentives are, are done. But where this gets back to what you're talking about right now is that, okay, there are definitely going to be things that are demotivating to do right no it doesn't we're not specifically talking about specs we're just talking about anything it could be an all-nighter 
right? It could be building a model and you hate building models. It could be, you know, anything. If you simply as a leader say, we're going to do this. Yes, it is going to suck. But we're going to do it anyway, and we're going to do it well, and we're going to do it right. That alone, just those words of, yes, this is going to, like acknowledging it up front is huge. And then celebrating when you're done, right? And, and, you, don't, and you don't even need to tell anybody before you do it that we're going to celebrate when we're done, or you're going to get a gift card, or you're going to, whatever it is. But you actually have to do it, because when you do it, you forget all that crap, right? <laughs> you forget the crap you went through, hopefully. And, and, and it actually makes a huge psychological difference. But I feel like there's so much of what we do, taking ourselves so seriously and really toiling at this stuff because it's hard work. Um, and then we don't come up for air and we keep doing it. And especially now when we're, you know, you're locked in your room, I'm locked in my room for months and months at a time and we don't get a change of scenery or whatever. It, that makes it really, really hard. And I think, you know, I'm wondering what what's this going to look like when they do these studies in 10 years of what it, what it was like, what we just went through or what we are going through. Um, I think it's going to show some very eye-opening things because it's very hard even to right now take some time out and do a celebration, right? So virtual happy hours are happening hopefully more often. I know they were happening when this thing started, but I kind of get the sense that they've kind of slowed down or stopped. I know ours have. Yeah, it's just... Because we're, we're already on a screen all the time, and I, yeah, yeah. I think that it's kind of like, okay, I want to get away from the screen. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, But I think like we've got to find ways to do those little celebrations, especially now when we're not getting that release that out, outer you know seeing other people like you were talking before we, we started actually recording the show about like we just you're a people person you want to see these people you want to do these classes in person like you feed off of that energy not everybody does but a lot of people do right so even if you are an introvert and you still got to celebrate those wins you still got to celebrate making it through these different things because it's it's a huge component psychologically to being oh, able to, to stay to stay sane, <laughs> yeah. Well, and to stay motivated. Um, yeah. I'm I'm just naturally a fairly motivated person to a certain degree. If it's something I like doing, yeah, I can be the biggest procrastinator on the planet if it's something I don't like yeah, doing. Right, avoidance. Or it yeah. doesn't. If it doesn't give me joy, what I like most is being able to make a difference for somebody else. So. You know, your whole thing with the staff, well, this is going to suck, you know. Let's find a way to make it bearable. <laughs> right. Well, what I add on to that is, you know, because I work for nine offices in two countries, over 300 people. And so I am not neck deep in anybody's design. So mm -hmm. I have to really work with the teams to get information about what they're designing and doing. So I come to the, and they all, everybody hates specs. So I come to them and say, okay, this is going to suck. And I'm going to need these things for you, but here's how I'm going to make your life easier if you give it to me. Yeah. Oh my God, they love that. Yeah. <laughs> like I'll do this, 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 and this for you if you get me this by this time. Yep. You don't. You don't have to do these pieces. Yeah. You don't like specs? Just give me the cut sheet and drop a couple circles in Bluebeam on it on the places where you're making a choice for your project. I'll write it for you. When you have that kind of more positive approach. And, and I'm here to help you. I think that's a game changer as well. Mm -hmm. How can we help each other? Yeah. And and that actually does motivate me. Yeah. Either a really good challenge or I can help somebody. Those are my two biggest fires under my butt to get me really trying to kick butt at something. Well, you're you're helping so many people and beyond your role and at your job, but but doing the CSI, doing construct, doing the speaking, doing the CDT, like there's so many things that you are doing. So I'm hoping that you're also taking care of yourself. <laughs> I might struggle with balance a little bit sometimes, but I actually, um, talking to somebody about this the other day, this whole COVID thing, you know, obviously people are dealing with this at different levels. Mm -hmm. And I'll be the first one to admit, I've had some moments throughout this where I just thought, oh my God, this is the most miserable thing on the planet. And I'm not generally a very negative person. I had, I just had a couple Last week, I was miserable all week long. That's the first time that's happened mm. since this is to, to that level. But usually I'm not like that. 
But I chose to go into this. I have a personal belief that even the worst situations have a silver lining. Mm. Even if it's something really hard that you go through, it teaches you something and you can grow from it. So I decided to approach this as I need to, what can I do during this time I'm in lockdown? What are my silver linings going to be? So Mm. as of tomorrow, Mm. tomorrow, I'm so excited. All of my credit card debt is paid off. Awesome. Uh, Wow. Yeah. I'm I'm excited about that. I've been working out seven days a week and I wasn't much of a worker outer person before. (laughs) Um, and I'm working out seven days a week, twice a twice a day on four of those days because I'm doing Pilates four days a week and walking, power walking at least, trying to do at least five miles a day, seven days a week. Um, so I'm getting in better shape and I'm getting stronger, which makes me feel better. Yeah. I purged my whole house except for this one room I'm in. And I'm starting to look at buying a house. Um, you know, just I think that at the end of the day, Either you can let your environment or circumstances that you have no control over own you or you Mm -hmm. can own them. Yeah. So I'm finding probably more time for myself right now than I have in the last like seven or eight years. Wow. Wow. But that's been good for me. Good. Uh, Yeah. All right. Well, I I feel like we're kind of wrapping up here. So I have three questions for you. First one. Are you ready? Share something (laughs) that you do to help yourself perform better. I mean, you might have just said what those things are, <laughs> but I, I think but, I kind of, you know, my, my motivator is the best way to get me to really kick butt is say, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't make that happen. Watch me, watch me do it blindfolded twice. <laughs> um, so a good, a good challenge or really making a difference for, for somebody is really my thing more than any other tool or, and I make lists, I make lists for everything. I have lists all over the place. Because I can, I, my brain's really busy, and if I can write it down in a list, I know I won't lose it anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And I can focus on one thing. And... I write it down so I can, so I don't have to remember it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that is a sanity uh, coping mechanism for sure. All right. So, who who are you listening to? Who are you reading right now? Who's influencing you? Oh God, who's influencing me? You know who's really um. I have actually read a few books, which I love to read, and I haven't done a lot of that lately, but I can't even remember what they were. Um, Who's really influencing me probably more than anybody right now is the young professionals that I have been interacting with, whether it's through the whole youngarchitect.com group or through my CDT classes or through some of my... I've, I've connected in a different way with a lot of new ones lately since I'm stuck here all the time. I, I get emails asking for advice on all kinds of things it, well, well beyond anything professional. Um, and, and I think that's really been a big influence on me mm. lately. I hate the TV. Mm-hmm. I've, I've actually binge watched a couple things lately and it almost leaves a bad taste, taste in my mm-hmm. mouth. Yeah. And there's no football on, so I can't even get lost in that. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, I would say that's probably been my biggest influence and there's been more effort and interaction in that area, even more so lately than ever before. That's a fantastic angle on that question that hasn't come up before. I mean, I think that finding and understanding that about yourself is, that's huge, right? Because now you know where to go And, and you're, you're just kind of always in that anyway, with all of these different things that you're doing. But I think when you know you need something, you, you it's like well, you by teaching these courses, you know you're going to get something back out of it. And I, 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 you hear that a lot, but like this is just another testimony toward that. It's actually kind of selfish because people say to me, "Oh, you do all these things. You're so great," which makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable. And and my response is always, "I do these things because I'm getting more out of it mm-hmm. than they are." Yeah, it's actually really, really selfish. Because I really am. It keeps me going. Yeah. All right. Last question. Where can people find out more about you or follow along with what you're doing online? Oh, boy. Okay. So uh, I'm on LinkedIn, my first and last name. Really easy to find me. Um, I'm on Twitter. And I have all kinds of hashtags, depending on my mood on any given day. But um, (laughs) my Twitter name is Sharice Lakeside. And you can usually find my tweets with hashtag CSI Kraken 
or hashtag peaches. You want to explain unicorn? Any one of those? (laughs) They they've been calling me the Kraken in CSI since almost since one of my first board meetings in the Portland chapter years ago, and it's just basically they're saying you want to get something done, release the Kraken, release Sharice on it. That's how it started. Um, Peaches is my inner child. Um, who I'm very much trying try, trying to stay connected to these days. So her name is Peaches, and if I'm misbehaving, it's probably her, not me. <laughs> I know I know nothing about it. And the other ones are just little nicknames that have come up. I love it from somebody at one point or another. I love how your personality comes through on all these different avenues. It's it's awesome. I mean, and that's what I think. Something that when when we met each other on Twitter so long ago, like. It's like, huh, wonder what that is. And then you follow along and you're like, okay, like I'm starting to get the picture. And then, you know, you, you, you clobber somebody like me with it. And uh, it, it's fun. I, I think you really do like the ethos that you talked about earlier by making things fun so that, you know, we can make it through or see the light at the end of the tunnel or actually enjoy what we're doing. I think that comes through in all the things that you do. So thank you so much for being an inspiration. I really do feel like. I don't use that term lightly. I really do feel like like you're definitely inspiring. Thank you. I don't I, I certainly don't get up in the morning and say, Oh, I want to be inspiring. Yeah. It's truly just kind of who I am, but but I do. I, I do love to put a smile on somebody's face. And I love that we met on Twitter and actually ended up eventually collaborating with you guys coming to construct and then I flew down to your firm and, and you even showed me around your city there and we had dinner and yep. When I first started and somebody told me to be on Twitter, I told them that was the stupidest damn thing I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> Waste of my time. I'm not going to do that. And she and challenged me to do it. And I have these friends all over the country now. So I am crazy. It's one of the things I'm really grateful for that I never anticipated. And a good example why you should never get in your own head and say that's not going to work. Yeah. It's interesting to me to see how much of our industry and profession is on Twitter. And that's really where they've congregated. And a lot of really good information is translated on there. Really good stuff. So Great information. But people just think, you know, it's like I tell everybody, I say, if you don't want to connect to a bunch of 13-year-old screaming girls, don't follow Justin Bieber. Right. You know, I mean, everybody I follow is in our industry. I'd say 99.5% mm-hmm. of who I'm connected to is in some area of our industry, both on LinkedIn and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And that's been a game changer as well. Yeah, great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. And I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.